0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is editor and writer Rob Spillman. He is the editor and co-founder of Tin House, a literary magazine, and co-founder of the Tin House Summer Workshop. His memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties, chronicles the first 25 years of his life as he moved between his divorced parents' households in Berlin... Baltimore, Rochester, New York, and Aspen. The book opens as Spillman and his wife move to East Berlin months after the wall came down in search of the bohemian lifestyle. The memoir is told in chapters that alternate between Spillman's life in Berlin and episodes of his itinerant childhood. We began talking about the writing process for this memoir, which took Spillman 10 years to write.
1: I think I struggled uh for about seven years of just really flailing and trying to find the right form and trying to find the right parameters for it. So I first started writing it uh, chronologically and it just, it never felt right to me. It just, uh, I couldn't figure out how to get the Berlin of 1990 more to the front. It felt like it just took forever to get that that there, and also you know the, one of the challenges of memoir is that the goalposts are always moving. You know, you wake up every day and you're a new person and you have new knowledge. Um, so trying to come up with a place that I could fix it um, or you know sort of end, you know, come up with a finish line. So. It took me about seven years to finally say, "Okay, I'm going to stop at the age of 25 and let no knowledge come in after that." So it took me seven years of sort of, um, uh, you know, bashing my head against a wall to to really figure that out. And I was also at the same time sort of making incremental, I guess, progress to. A, Towards being more honest with myself and really excavating how I felt about that time, and uh, it, it took a long time to to get to a place where I felt like I was really uh, honest with myself.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that you struggled with how to tell it, and that linearly and, and in time it didn't work for you. <laughs> and one of the things I was really struck. By was the structure of this story. I thought it was very complicated, meaning it took a lot of thought and sort of architecture to create. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, as someone who's an editor, do you think sometimes structure is all a story needs? And then in the second part, tell me about how you did this feat, because it's it doesn't seem like it was easy.
1: I, You know, as I said, I was trying to get the Berlin, 1990 part more forward, and then finally I had this sort of epiphany, like why don't I uh, alternate, and that way I can create this tension because when you when you create dual narratives, uh, your brain naturally wonders how in the world are these two things going to come together. So that was that was the easy part of coming up with it, and then the actual architecture and making it satisfying took a lot of work, actually. There was a lot of moving back and forth, and my editor was really helpful in that, too. And one of the surprising things is when I, when I landed on that structure was that I was able to play with time. I was able to foreshadow things and refer to things before they happened, sort of in the past tense, because I could say things in the Berlin section about my childhood, and then have them come up and have them in a different way so I could have characters refer to them in different ways. So that was, that was a bonus and a, and a bonus complication. But yeah, it did take, it took a lot of, in the editing process, figuring out how to make that satisfying. And it also put pressure on the narrative that I wound up cutting a lot. Because it didn't move the story forward, it didn't, you know, contribute to the tension of the two sections.
0: And do you think, as an editor, that sometimes structure is all people need to to have their story that isn't working work?
1: Well, it definitely gives it a shape and a tension that might not have been there before. A way in. You know, I teach a seminar at Columbia, and one of my late in the semester assignments is to violate one of my golden rules. So use uninteresting language, you know, put in bad mystery, eliminate the stakes, or you know, do things that seem contrary but by taking away someone's tools you force them. It creates a lot of pressure on them so they have to come up with an alternate structure and particularly with personal stories I think it really helps to have you know confinement it really puts a lot of pressure on the on the work to get it right
0: I know you grew up in Berlin when you were young and the story opens when you're newly married and the political situation has completely changed why were you so drawn to being there and what what sort of was going on in your mind that you thought as an artist this was the place to
1: be well, having grown up there, I felt this strong connection to it. And then when the wall came down, it was it, it was unthinkable that the wall could actually come down. And then there was this limbo, and to me it felt like it was going to be the Spanish Civil War of our generation. It was like the moment where young artists could go someplace and make a difference. You know, I had this very romantic ideal about what it could be. And I felt this overwhelming need to be there to experience it and be on the, on the ground floor of something that could have been revolutionary. It was a blank slate. There was uh, good you know, a year before the Western authorities could, could come in and also Western speculators couldn't come in and buy anything. Everything was in limbo. And so the place could remake itself in whatever image it wanted.
0: Did you get out of it some of what you were hoping?
1: I did and I didn't. I, you know, got to experience the sort of utopian rush and, you know, the excitement of rebuilding and... Uh, all of these sort of spontaneous sort of experiences every week a new bar or theater or something would open up in completely unlikely places but I also realized that it really wasn't my fight and I was chasing history and romantic ideals and that became more and more apparent the longer I was there.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rob Spillman, editor and co-founder of Tin House Magazine and author of the memoir All Tomorrow's Parties. Something that seemed to really plague you during the course of this book from a very young age, because you you moved a lot with your parents um, to begin with. You were very young in Berlin and then went back to Rochester and to Baltimore, And so you were itinerant, but they also separated when you were really young. So you had that maybe sort of homelessness sense about you. But this restlessness within your soul and also an honesty about sort of feeling in a spiritual desert. Can you just talk about that feeling and how that sort of led to the actions of your life and, and what it was like inside your head?
1: You know, I spent my first nine years in Berlin and... I consider that home, but when we left there, I had no family there. I had no no real attachment to there at all. So I always felt like that was my kind of spiritual home, but it wasn't really because I had no family there. So I was always kind of, I felt rootless, and I was always searching for, for a home, uh, and also an artistic home. I I had all these artistic, romantic notions that there there was a a scene that I would just walk into, sort of like 1920s Paris or New York in the 50s, that I would just sort of step into it, or San Francisco in the 60s, that I would find a Ken Kesey, and he would adopt me, and then I would be home. So that, that, was, that was part of it. So I always, uh, wherever I was, uh, I was disappointed because I wasn't immediately embraced by a scene, you know, not realizing or not admitting that actually those people made the scene wherever they were. So, you know, it's hard to become part of a scene unless you may actually make it.
0: So when you were young and you were living in, in Germany, your parents uh, separated and you stayed with your dad. And you, you talked about it. When I got to that in the book, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting for the 60s. And later you sort of explain that it turns out that your father was gay and that your mom really had to take off. Can you talk about your early years just being with your dad?
1: I felt a little bit like Eloise at the Plaza, you know, I had, I would go straight from school to backstage or a rehearsal space, and there were no other kids around. And so I hung around with, you know, all these glamorous opera people and divas of, of all kinds. Uh, so it was kind of magical. In Berlin, it was very multi And so there are people from around the world. Also in, in Aspen, when we, my father, you know, worked at the Aspen Music Festival for many years as the musical director of the opera. And, you know, there there were people coming from all over the world for nine weeks, you know, nine or ten weeks during the summer. So it was this sort of summer camp for musicians. And they were, you know, a really, really lively, interesting group. That's what I considered uh, reality was being backstage, you know, not not playing Little League baseball or anything like that.
0: I just find it interesting when children grow up in that adult world, what it does to their intellect. Was it also lonely?
1: At the time, I didn't think it was lonely. But, you know, it's funny when I talk to, you know, like my wife and say, yeah, I used to play Monopoly against myself. Um, You know, it was fun. And she'd be like, oh, that's really sad. You You know, so it's a matter of, Perspective, you know, not have. I did. I just didn't know any other kids outside of school, and uh, I thought it was much more interesting being backstage and also being on stage. I was in a lot of children's roles in operas too, and so that was that to me. That was more exciting than uh, uh, playing baseball. Or also, I didn't even know about American TV until I came to the U.S. You know, I wasn't exposed to it at all, and that's what my, when I came to the US, that's what people talked about. So I had to do a crash course in American TV, you know, watch all all the reruns of Mod Squad, I could, so I could feel like, you know, I knew what people were talking about.
0: Well, one of the things that seemed really important when you were young, and it seemed very young to get into this was running. Can you talk about the role that running played for you amidst all this change and moving and your own inner restlessness?
1: Yeah, I, you know, part of being a young adult before I was ready is um, I couldn't act out. And I, my parents never really talked about why they separated. And so I was on edge thinking that either one of them could, could leave at any time. And so I did, you know, never really felt settled. And so the ways I escaped were reading and running. So I, you know, early on, I, I really got into reading, you know, everything from Chronicles of Narnia to to Stephen King, anything to kind of escape. And uh, I also got into running, which was. Uh, uh, a way to not only escape, but it was a way to deal with my nervous energy and my anger. And uh, it was a way of, of expressing myself physically, which I couldn't do. I couldn't act like a normal child. like The idea of having a tantrum was not a thing. So you know, 12, 13 years old, I started running and got more and more into it. and. It sort of coincided with our spending summers in Aspen, and that was an ideal place to run. And I particularly loved running on trails. So I would run up Hunter Creek, but I would also, you know, once I turned 16, I would go up, I would drive up to the passes and, like, run, run you know, over Lincoln Pass and Conundrum Hot Springs. I would, I would pick these really difficult crazy runs to do, you know, to just push my body and, and throw myself out into into the wilderness if I could.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rob Spillman, editor and co-founder of Tin House Magazine and author of the memoir All Tomorrow's Parties. One of my favorite scenes in the book was when you were in East Germany and it had opened up and you had to get your laundry done and you went into this, it seemed like it was sort of an industrial laundry place and they had big laundry machines and you had three, three people's worth of clothes. Can you talk about this scene for, for our listeners? What, what happened and what you yeah, thought about it, it?
1: So in East Berlin at the time, everybody did their own laundry and they, there were lines strung on the interior courtyards where you just hung your, your clothes to dry. Uh, there were no washing machines, and I stumbled on this industrial facility, and I went in and I tried to convince them to do our laundry, and uh, it was as if I was speaking a completely foreign language, which I was. I was speaking the language of capitalism, which just wasn't a thing at all. You know, just convincing them to even think about it was a challenge, but they there were two people, and they conferred, and they they took an entire bag of laundry and looked at every single item and held up each thing. So they would take a, you know, a dirty sock, look at it, inspect it and go, yes, we can wash that. And then they would pick up another sock and said, yes, we can. I mean, it took you know, 20 minutes to go just to go through the laundry. And then they said it would take eight days to do this bag of laundry. And they just couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that just four miles away over the wall, you could do your laundry yourself at a laundromat and and be in and out in two hours. It just, it just, it seemed like I was talking about, you know, nuclear fusion. It was really frustrating to me because I was so invested in uh, helping the the local people before the Western Tides came in and having them help themselves. And they just, you know, they and these were smart people. They were not, you know, they were not dull people. They just, it, it was just a foreign concept to them.
0: It must have been an interesting place for you to be in psychologically. And I think it was much harder for your wife, as you depict in the pages, to know that, just less than a mile away, you could be in a whole other century, really.
1: Yeah, it was. And she also didn't have the language. She doesn't speak German. So uh, she was totally reliant on my language skills and my my knowledge of the German people. And I was also very stubborn and wanting to stay in East Berlin and support the people and be one with the people. And, you know, we could just get in our beat up little car and go over the border and actually have a decent meal and get our laundry done if I gave in, which I did.
0: Can you talk about the experience of handing this to your parents to read?
1: I showed it to my parents last fall before it went into galleys, and that was difficult. That was really, really difficult, particularly my mother, because in the book I I refer to all these things that, oh, my mother has to know about this, or she had to know at the time what was going on. She actually didn't. A lot of the information in the book was a surprise to her because I was very good at camouflaging my feelings and my actions. So after she read the book, she still lives in Baltimore. She got on the train and came up to New York, and we sat at my kitchen table for five hours and and talked it out. Uh, we talked about everything in the book. It was a long overdue conversation, and she gave me sort of deep background on a lot of uh, a lot of information in the book, which actually helped deepen the book, as far as I'm concerned. but it was a really difficult a difficult five hours. And then my father, on the other hand, was more he was much more positive. <laughs> like, wow, you've created art out of your experience. But uh, he was much more, it's your story. You have to tell it the way you saw it.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rob Spillman, editor and co-founder of Tin House Magazine and author of the memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties. So having written this book and, and now it's out in the world, what did it open up for you? I mean, I think you primarily just work as an editor, but what? how, how do you feel maybe different now?
1: My goal was to fail as best I could with the material. I was going to try my hardest and, you know, no no work of art, I think, is completely successful, but you just, you know, as Beckett said, you know, fail better, and that was my goal: is to wrestle the material to my satisfaction. And I think what it has accomplished for me is that I feel that I am at peace with the material. Like I've uh, engaged and examined myself as much as I could, and I was as honest with myself as I could be. I'm happy to have gone th- through that. And uh, I think that's, that's, th- that's the main thing that's changed is that I can now look back at, the, at that time and say, you know, I think I figured it out.
0: Can you read a passage from a writer that influenced your own writing, Someone that, something that speaks to you?
1: So I have picked uh, a poem by Mary Roifel. This is from her selected poems. And it's called Mariposa and the Doll." and it's a short poem. I perceive nothing but the wild, wild sob of agony. We must look into this posy, said her father. Too many pretty dolls might compose the problem. Then he took an old tongueless boot and turned it upside down. And on the flat horseshoe of its decomposed heel, he hammered three nails two for the eyes and one for the nose. Then he took a rag that had become a rag and tied it around the throat. He sat the shoe doll on her lap and left. Mariposa sat with the doll and waited, but nothing happened between them. She threw the shoe off. I've no one to talk to, when the doll stirred, sighing, and said, The lurid light of a May morning, and the hills a cast of purplish beans on the horizon, and the violent freshness of our awakening like a plow turning the black earth, and still the deeper-than-you-can-furrow feeling that today is but a placebo for tomorrow. Such is the volatile fact of our hidden inertia. Thereafter, the long afternoons were much shortened.
0: Can you talk about why you picked this?
1: Well, I love her language, for one thing. I think it all starts in language. But that idea of today is but a placebo for tomorrow, and such is the fact—the volatile fact of our hidden inertia. I just love that idea that, that you're living for tomorrow um, if you're not careful. That was one of my kind of themes in my book is that I kept you know, and and the title, which comes from a Velvet Underground song, is that I was living for tomorrow and the sort of, both tomorrow and for history, you know, that I I was striving for the next historical epoch, you know, artistic epoch that I was going to somehow stumble into Berlin in the 20s, or the new Berlin in the 20s. So I think Mary really gets at that that feeling.
0: Can you read a passage from something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or really hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Well, I'm going to read from chapter 13, and it's that scene where I, I go into East Berlin. So age eight, with my father walking across the border at Checkpoint Charlie, my mouth dry, hands damp, a wad of contraband U.S. dollars hot against the sole of my left foot, It was illegal to bring Western currency into East Berlin, but my father assured me that the border police never searched kids. We walked past the US soldiers on the Western side of the small metal bridge, me avoiding eye contact. And then we were in between the double rows of concrete Berliners called no man's land. On the Eastern side, we slid our passports and 25 West German marks into a drawer that disappeared into a glass partition booth manned by East German soldiers.
0: And tell me about this passage.
1: This was a real formative memory for me. And it was something that's you know, kind of a core story for me. I had U.S. dollars in my sock and we walked throughout East Berlin to get to this music shop. And the challenge with writing about a formative memory is that I have replayed it so many times in my head is that trying to, to really get it right what what was actually happening at, at the moment and, and with my father. and So I had to really interrogate my own memories of this, and the, this changed a lot. And you know, I, looked at, I looked at old maps and you know, plotted our roots and you know, tried to, to match up my memories with what I know are the facts. So that was a challenge.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write anywhere and everywhere. Um, I have no set routine because my schedule just goes all over the place. So I write primarily at my kitchen table, but I also write on trains and planes and in hotel rooms, um, anywhere I can, I can write. You know, Usually with a laptop, but I'll write longhand if I have to. But uh, I have no set routine.
0: And what do you do to get away from
1: writing? I both bike ride and run. Primarily, I've been running lately. I've come back to running after 25 years of, of bike racing. I wound up getting physical therapy for a bike injury that that fixed some old running injuries. And I was able to run the New York Marathon this past November, which had been a longtime goal of mine.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: My wife, Elisa, uh, who is also a writer, uh, we show each other our work because we're very different. Um, I'm much more logical. She's much more emotional. So we we balance each other out. Uh, But she's, she's my first reader.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Again, by going for a long run or a bike ride. That's, that's the main thing. Sort of get it out of my system and then carry on. Uh, I've gotten really good at you know, being an editor and rejecting a lot myself. I realize that it's not personal. You just have to be at the right place at the right time. And that, that takes a lot of getting used to, especially when your ego is involved with, with a project. So it's okay to be angry, but, but then you have to move on and find the right place at the right time.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Engage.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Rob Spillman, author of the memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.